Grace be unto you, and great peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today is taken from this gospel lesson, and I'll read these words of Jesus. He said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Here ends our text. When I was in high school, personal stories here, my parents moved from Minnesota to southwestern Colorado. And of course that meant that we also had to find a new house to live in. First we rented for a while and then we finally bought an existing house that had some beautiful trees in the backyard. One of those was a peach tree. And it had obviously been there for a while, but it was a tree that, well, it would come out and it would blossom beautifully and it always seemed inevitably that there would be a frost and the tree would not bring forth its fruit. Well, one year it was a glorious and great year because the tree came out and it blossomed beautifully and suddenly there was enough warm weather to get us past all those days of frost, those nights of frost. And that tree broke out into the most marvelous peaches you could have ever imagined. My mother would take those peaches soft and juicy and she would cut them in half and put them into a pie and pour cream over the top of them. And I thought that maybe I had gone to heaven when I was eating that peach pie. This idea of a tree, of a plant that brings forth fruit is always such a great analogy because our Lord not only uses them, but there must have been something in God's creation where He was constantly teaching us about our relationship to Him and the very things that gave us life too. Now, in this John chapter 15, he talks about the vine and the branches, but we could very easily talk about peach trees in much the same way. Jesus tells us that his father is the farmer, that he is the tree, and that we are the fruit, that we ourselves have been brought into this faith, this Christian faith of ours, not just to be able to be Christians in the sense of what we believe, but actually to live our lives out with the same kind of love that He has given to us. He wants us now to live that kind of fruitful life too. And this is something that we have to learn, a process even that we have to learn from our Lord and our Savior in the context of that analogy, that metaphor, that simile of this tree that is supposed to bring forth fruit. There are probably seven things in this text that probably tell us a little bit about our, Christ, our Christian life and our relationship with God and with one another that really kind of come from that analogy. The first and 
perhaps one of the most difficult for us to understand is that every farmer prunes his tree. I didn't know much about pruning, but my neighbor, who was an old farmhand out west there, he knew how to prune those trees. And he showed me how to be able to cut them and what branches to cut off and where it is that they were supposed to grow out and gain more sun and so on. He taught me about how it is that I was supposed to water that tree, how that tree, if it was going to be protected, it was to be sprayed, etc., etc. But most importantly, the pruning. We wonder... Does God prune us? What's the purpose of this? The purpose is so that when the fruit does come, it actually becomes richer. It receives the nutrients that come from the tree and makes the fruit even tastier. That's the way it works for us. You know how God prunes us. Jesus says in this text that the world hates us. And we have to get used to that idea because when we are not a part of the world, it doesn't always feel so great. We find ourselves at odds with the way that the world thinks. We find ourselves at odds with the world when we have to speak words of judgment even against the world. The world doesn't want to hear the judgments of God. It doesn't want to hear about such things even as sin. And neither do we. But God, out of his good graciousness and kindness, prunes us when he gives us that, that conscience that, as the hymn said, upbraids us, that condemns us, that gives us that terrible feeling like we don't want to be that, we don't want to do that, we want to be able to find relief from that. And for so many, they try to be able to get rid of their guilt in all different kinds of ways. But God is gracious to us when he doesn't let us off the hook, rationalizing and justifying, but he rather throws us at his feet and he bids us to come to him and ask for his great forgiveness. We don't always understand the pruning. Why would God take away this person that I love? Why is it that I have to bear this sickness or this disease? Why is it that things can't be better in my life? Why can't I succeed, God? And we have to back up and remember that as we reach for God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and understanding and wisdom and we pray for that Holy Spirit, that God is doing something far greater than what our own minds would ever be able to understand. We are told not only that we are going to be pruned by our Lord, but also we are to be reminded that the life that we have is in the tree itself. The branch doesn't give life if it is cut off from that tree. Jesus said to his disciples, you are clean already because of the word that was spoken to you. What does God's word say to us? We begins, I think, in our baptism, right? Where we are made into children of God, where the word creates. You remember that word of Christ that could speak the word and Lazarus could come forth out of death? Remember that word of Christ where he could touch the beer of a young dead boy and that boy could come back to life, that same word that spoke at creation and the sun and the moon and the stars and the universe came into being that same word 
was spoken to you in that word of the gospel, in that word of absolution today, that said that your sins were forgiven. And then when you are clean, you have to remember that it is because of your union with Christ, like a branch and a vine, or a branch into a tree, that the life that we have received is the life that actually belongs to Christ. And that as certainly as Christ was raised from the dead, and that He now lives because He lives, we are going to live too. And He gives us those words, abide, abide in me, abide. Don't run off in the world. Don't take off and do your own thing. Don't forget about who I am. Don't stop reading the Scriptures. Abide in me, and I will abide also in you. He promises us, too, that this fruit that we produce in our life is going to be something that is going to come not just from Him, but through faith in Him. And this is something that brings us back to that story of the Reformation, doesn't it? That great debate that took place where the question was, do I need to do something in order to be able to receive the Holy Spirit? Is there something, some works that I have to do in order to be able to receive that Holy Spirit? And then you think about it. Here's a fruit. What does the fruit have to do in order to become fruit? And we would all look at each other and we'd say, that's the dumbest question I ever heard of in my life. But when it comes to the spiritual questions and we say, what must I do to become a Christian? How foolish. How foolish it is, but not always to our ears because we still have that lingering thing inside of us that wants to believe that we did something to contribute to our own salvation. Does the fruit say to the tree, look at me. I did all these things in order to be able to make myself into a fruit. No. The question is this. Not only how did I become a Christian, and the answer is the tree gave you that life, but the second question is, what did God create me for? He created you and He created me in order that we might do good works. He wants us to do good works because that's the fruit. Paul says something like this in Ephesians. It's really quite beautiful. For by grace you have been saved through faith, this is not of your own doing. It's a gift from God, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. God wants us to love each other. God wants us to be able to do those commandments. Yeah, they're tough, and those commandments are things that we fail to do, but he wants us, he shows us in those commandments what kind of a life he wants us to live. We're to love God above all things, even our children. We're to love God in His Word as our dearest treasure. We are to worship Him on that Sabbath day with a reverence for His Word, to say nothing of the honor of our parents, the love that we have for our spouse, the way in which we protect our neighbor's reputation, the way in which we advance and help our neighbor to protect his property and his business. These are the fruits that come from a Christian life where we know that God has so loved us. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. 
That's the kind of love not only that we are to accept and receive and believe and have and trust in from our God, but we are also to turn around and give that same kind of love to our own neighbor, most especially to our Christian neighbor. The fourth thing that this analogy teaches us is this, that all glory for all of those works that we do belongs to the farmer. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever gone to a state fair. I always thought it was kind of odd that you'd go to a state fair and there's all this fruit and vegetables all over the place, big watermelons and everything else, and people had, they had ribbons on them. People were proud of what it is that they had grown. They received, if you will, the glory for what had happened. To whom does the glory belong for all of the things which God has done in and through us? It belongs to God himself. And that's why our whole life is to become a praise and a thanksgiving to God for what it is that he has done for us. We are also told by our Lord that he says, you know, a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I'm calling you friends because a friend does. Everything that Christ has to teach us and everything that God has to give us is given there in and through the Word of God. In other words, as a Christian, when a little baby is baptized, every single gift that God has to give, all of the Holy Spirit is already given. You say, well, why is that? Every single cult in this world comes at you with the idea that you have to get something more that only they can give you. It isn't just always the Masons went downtown yesterday and there's a Scottish Rite Cathedral and for years it was always, well, if you know the special secrets of the Masons, you'll be able to find those special things that nobody else has. It's not just the Mormons who will always be telling you that if you do these things in these temples of theirs that you will also gain a higher place in a higher heaven. No, it is the Word of God that comes to us and bestows everything that we have in the third article of the Apostles' Creed. We say what? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Every single one of those gifts is given in its totality and fullness to us as Christians. Our problem is that we don't comprehend it. Our problem is that we don't grasp it. And maybe a part of our problem, and this is where it is that the fruit really becomes the fruit, is that with that wonderful news that God has done all things for us in Christ and given us this marvelous gift, we don't experience the fullness of the joy in that. Every single day of our lives, we should wake up and say to ourselves, we have heaven, eternal life waiting for us. Christ has done everything for us. We need not ever doubt God has given us what such wonderful gifts. And that's the reason why it is that there is no reason for why it is that we cannot live in the fullness of joy 
because God has given us the fullness of all the gifts of the Holy Spirit because they're all a gift from God, not by works. We must also remember, too, taken from this text, where the cause of our salvation lies. You say, why do we need to know about the cause? Again, it goes back to the question of this. If I have to contribute to my own self, if I have to do something to save myself, then the cause of salvation is in me. But if God chooses before time and eternity, and we know that this is true, to call you by name and me by name, and from eternity, He is the one who actually has called you, gathered you, enlightened you, sanctified you, and keep you in that faith all the way until the day that you die. And you say, I just don't understand that. And I can only tell you this. Jesus said this, and these are the toughest words for so many people today who are part of the decision theology folks who decide, well, I have to choose Jesus. I have to do this. I have to do that. Let me tell you this. Jesus said, you did not choose me. I chose you. Sometimes that makes us sit back and struggle and wonder whether or not these words could ever be true. But consider how incredibly glorious those words are. You did not choose me. I chose you and chose you for what purpose? So that you would bear fruit, fruit that will last. When we get to heaven... We're going to come to discover this incredible pattern of how God works in time and eternity. And we're going to discover how it is that God called us from before the creation of the world and knew us by name and laid out every single good work that we would ever walk in and every bit of fruit that we produce in our life, every piece of joy, every piece of love that we have ever done has our cause in Him. And you know what we're going to do in heaven? We're going to stand there and we're going to sing praise in our hearts and we're going to say, I can't believe that God could be so wondrously gracious to me and call me from eternity to be his child and to give me eternal life. And all those crosses and all those trials and all those sacrifices and all the things that we gave up in order to be Christians in this world are going to seem like nothing by comparison to the glory that's waiting for us beyond that door of death. Then, we just have to remember one little thing. My wife goes down, well, we both go down, and I walk around and look for you people and say hi to people, and she buys the ugly tomatoes. They're ugly tomatoes, and she likes the ugly tomatoes better than the really nice-looking ones, because the nice-looking ones are probably ones that, hey, somebody got out of the store and just is selling down there in the street. But the ugly tomatoes, they're real. But you know what? She reckons them to be better than the other tomatoes, because they are. They taste better. You know, our lives look like ugly tomatoes, and they will always look like ugly tomatoes to us and probably to others, too. But you know what's so wonderful about our measly, insignificant, and sometimes it seems like meaningless things that we do is that when God reckons them to be good works, 
when He reckons them to be good fruit. They become good fruit. How gracious our Lord and Savior is that He gives us the simplest analogies, the simplest metaphors, the simplest stories. You are the branches. You are the fruit upon the tree of Christ. And remember those words. You did not choose me. I chose you that you would go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And then he makes us a promise that as a result of that, he says, then my Father will ask you whatever you ask in my name. He will give you whatever you ask in my name. So this is my command. Love one another. Amen. May this peace of God surpasses all human understanding. Guard and keep your thoughts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus into life everlasting. Amen.